Conclusion, Part One of the Stones of Venice, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Stones of Venice, Volume Three by John Ruskin. Conclusion, Part One. I fear this chapter will be a rambling one for it must be a kind of supplement to the preceding pages, and a general recapitulation of the things I have too imperfectly and feebly said. The grotesques of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, the nature of which we examined in the last chapter, closed the career of the architecture of Europe. They were the last evidences of any feeling consistent with itself, and capable of directing the efforts of the builder to the formation of anything worthy the name of a style or school. From that time to this, no resuscitation of energy has taken place, nor does any for the present appear possible. How long this impossibility may last, and in what direction with regard to art in general, as well as to our lifeless architecture, our immediate efforts may most preferably be directed, are the questions I would endeavour briefly to consider in the present chapter. That modern science, with all its additions to the comforts of life and to the fields of rational contemplation, has placed the existing races of mankind on a higher platform than any that preceded them, none can doubt for an instant. And I believe the position in which we find ourselves is somewhat analogous to that of a thoughtful and laborious youth succeeding a restless and heedless infancy. Not long ago it was said to me by one of the masters of modern science, when men invented the locomotive, the child was learning to go. When they invented the telegraph, it was learning to speak. He looked forward to the manhood of mankind as assuredly the nobler in proportion to the slowness of its development. What might not be expected from the prime and middle strength of the order of existence, whose infancy had lasted six thousand years. And indeed, I think this the truth, as well as the most cheering view that we can take of the world's history. Little progress has been made as yet. Base war, lying policy, thoughtless cruelty, senseless improvidence, all things which, in nations, are analogous to the petulance, cunning, independence, and carelessness of infancy, have been, up to this hour, as characteristic of mankind as they were in the earliest periods, so that we must either be driven to doubt of human progress at all, or look upon it as in its very earliest stage. Whether the opportunity is to be permitted us to redeem the hours that we have lost, whether he, in whose sight a thousand years are as one day, has appointed us to be tried by the continued possession of the strange powers with which he has lately endowed us, or whether the periods of childhood and of probation are to cease together, and the youth of mankind is to be one which shall prevail over death, and bloom for ever in the midst of a new heaven and a new earth, are questions with which we have no concern. It is indeed right that we should look for, and hasten, so far as in us lies, the coming of the day of God, but not that we should check any human efforts by anticipations of its approach. We shall hasten it best by endeavouring to work out the tasks that are appointed for us here, and therefore, 
reasoning as if the world were to continue under its existing dispensation and the powers which have just been granted to us were to be continued through myriads of future ages it seems to me then that the whole human race so far as their own reason can be trusted may at present be regarded as just emergent from childhood and beginning for the first time to feel their strength to stretch their limbs and explore the creation around them if we consider that till within the last fifty years the nature of the ground we tread on of the air we breathe and of the light by which we see were not so much as conjecturally conceived by us that the duration of the globe and the races of animal life by which it was inhabited are just beginning to be apprehended and that the scope of the magnificent science which has revealed them is as yet so little received by the public mind that presumption and ignorance are still permitted to raise their voices against it unrebuked that perfect veracity in the representation of general nature by art has never been attempted until the present day and has in the present day been resisted with all the energy of the popular voice that the simplest problems of social science are yet so little understood as that doctrines of liberty and equality can be openly preached and so successfully as to affect the whole body of the civilized world with apparently incurable disease that the first principles of commerce were acknowledged by the english parliament only a few months ago in its free trade measures and are so little understood by the million that no nation dares to abolish its custom-houses that the simplest principles of policy are still not so much stated far less received and that civilized nations persist in the belief that the subtlety and dishonesty which they know to be ruinous in dealings between man and man are serviceable in dealings between multitude and multitude finally that the scope of the christian religion which we have been taught for two thousand years is still so little conceived by us that we suppose the laws of charity and of self-sacrifice bear upon individuals in all their social relations and yet do not bear upon nations in any of their political relations when i say we thus review the depth of simplicity in which the human race are still plunged with respect to all that it most profoundly concerns them to know and which might by them with most ease have been ascertained we can hardly determine how far back on the narrow path of human progress we ought to place the generation to which we belong how far the swaddling clothes are unwound from us and childish things beginning to be put away on the other hand a power of obtaining veracity in the representation of material and tangible things which within certain limits and conditions is unimpeachable has now been placed in the hands of all men almost without labour the foundation of every natural science is now at last firmly laid not a day passing without some addition of buttress and pinnacle to their already magnificent fabric social theorems if fiercely agitated are therefore the more likely to be at last determined so that they never can be matters of question more human life has been in some sense prolonged by the increased powers of locomotion and an almost limitless power of converse finally there is hardly any serious mind in europe but is occupied more or less in the investigation of the questions which have so long paralyzed the strength of religious feeling and shortened the domination of religious faith 
and we may therefore at least look upon ourselves as so far in a definite state of progress as to justify our caution in guarding against the dangers incident to every period of change and especially to that from childhood into youth these dangers appear in the main to be twofold consisting partly in the pride of vain knowledge partly in the pursuit of vain pleasure a few points are still to be noticed with respect to each of these heads enough it might be thought had been said already touching the pride of knowledge but i have not yet applied the principles at which we arrived in the third chapter to the practical questions of modern art and i think these principles together with what were deduced from the consideration of the nature of gothic in the second volume so necessary and vital not only with respect to the progress of art but even to the happiness of society that i will rather run the risk of tediousness than of deficiency in their illustration and enforcement in examining the nature of gothic we concluded that one of the chief elements of power in that and in all good architecture was the acceptance of uncultivated and rude energy in the workman in examining the nature of renaissance we concluded that its chief element of weakness was that pride of knowledge which not only prevented all rudeness in expression but gradually quenched all energy which could only be rudely expressed not only so but for the motive and matter of the work itself preferred science to emotion and experience to perception the modern mind differs from the renaissance mind in that its learning is more substantial and extended and its temper more humble but its errors with respect to the cultivation of art are precisely the same nay as far as regards execution even more aggravated we require at present from our general workmen more perfect finish than was demanded in the most skilful renaissance periods except in their very finest productions and our leading principles in teaching and in the patronage which necessarily gives tone to teaching are that the goodness of work consists primarily in firmness of handling and accuracy of science that is to say in handwork and headwork whereas heart work which is the one work we want is not only independent of both but often in great degree inconsistent with either here therefore let me finally and firmly enunciate the great principle to which all that has hitherto been stated is subservient that art is valuable or otherwise only as it expresses the personality activity and living perception of a good and great human soul that it may express and contain this with little help from execution and less from science and that if it have not this if it show not the vigour perception and invention of a mighty human spirit it is worthless worthless i mean as art it may be precious in some other way but as art it is nugatory once let this be well understood among us and magnificent consequences will soon follow let me repeat it in other terms so that i may not be misunderstood all art is great and good and true only so far as it is distinctively the work of manhood in its entire and highest sense that is to say not the work of limbs and fingers but of the soul aided 
according to her necessities by the inferior powers and therefore distinguished in essence from all products of those inferior powers unhelped by the soul for as a photograph is not a work of art though it requires certain delicate manipulations of paper and acid and subtle calculations of time in order to bring out a good result so neither would a drawing like a photograph made directly from nature be a work of art although it would imply many delicate manipulations of the pencil and subtle calculations of effects of colour and shade it is no more art to manipulate a camel's hair pencil than to manipulate a china tray and a glass vial it is no more art to lay on colour delicately than to lay on acid delicately it is no more art to use the cornea and retina for the reception of an image than to use a lens and a piece of silvered paper but the moment that inner part of the man or rather that entire and only being of the man of which cornea and retina fingers and hands pencils and colours are all the mere servants and instruments that manhood which has light in itself though the eyeball be sightless and can gain in strength when the hand and the foot are hewn off and cast into the fire the moment this part of the man stands forth with its solemn behold it is i then the work becomes art indeed perfect in honour priceless in value boundless in power yet observe i do not mean to speak of the body and soul as separable the man is made up of both they are to be raised and glorified together and all art is an expression of the one by and through the other all that i would insist upon is the necessity of the whole man being in his work the body must be in it hands and habits must be in it whether we will or not but the nobler part of the man may often not be in it and that nobler part acts principally in love reverence and admiration together with those conditions of thought which arise out of them for we usually fall into much error by considering the intellectual powers as having dignity in themselves and separable from the heart whereas the truth is that the intellect becomes noble and ignoble according to the food we give it and the kind of subjects with which it is conversant it is not the reasoning power which of itself is noble but the reasoning power occupied with its proper objects half of the mistakes of metaphysicians have arisen from their not observing this namely that the intellect going through the same processes is yet mean or noble according to the matter it deals with and wastes itself away in mere rotatory motion if it be set to grind straws and dust if we reason only respecting words or lines or any trifling and finite things the reason becomes a contemptible faculty but reason employed on holy and infinite things becomes herself holy and infinite so that by work of the soul i mean the reader always to understand the work of the entire immortal creature proceeding from a quick perceptive and eager heart perfected by the intellect and finally dealt with by the hands under the direct guidance of these higher powers and now observe the first important consequence of our fully understanding this preeminence of the soul 
will be the due understanding of that subordination of knowledge respecting which so much has already been said for it must be felt at once that the increase of knowledge merely as such does not make the soul larger or smaller that in the sight of god all the knowledge man can gain is as nothing but that the soul for which the great scheme of redemption was laid be it ignorant or be it wise is all in all and in the activity strength health and well-being of this soul lies the main difference in his sight between one man and another and that which is all in all in god's estimate is also be assured all in all in man's labour and to have the heart open and the eyes clear and the emotions and thoughts warm and quick and not the knowing of this or the other fact is the state needed for almighty doing in this world and therefore finally for this the weightiest of all reasons let us take no pride in our knowledge we may in a certain sense be proud of being immortal we may be proud of being god's children we may be proud of loving thinking seeing and of all that we are by no human teaching but not of what we have been taught by rote not of the ballast and freight of the ship of the spirit but only of its pilotage without which all the freight will only sink it faster and strew the sea more richly with its ruin there is not at this moment a youth of twenty having received what we moderns ridiculously call education but he knows more of everything except the soul than plato or st paul did but he is not for that reason a greater man or fitter for his work or more fit to be heard by others than plato or st paul there is not at this moment a junior student in our schools of painting who does not know fifty times as much about the art as giotto did but he is not for that reason greater than giotto no nor his work better nor fitter for our beholding let him go on to know all that the human intellect can discover and contain in the term of a long life and he will be not one inch one line nearer to giotto's feet but let him leave his academy benches and innocently as one knowing nothing go out into the highways and hedges and there rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep and in the next world among the companies of great and good giotto will give his hand to him and lead him into their white circle and say this is our brother and the second important consequence of our feeling the soul's preeminence will be our understanding the soul's language however broken or low or feeble or obscure in its words and chiefly that great symbolic language of past ages which has now so long been unspoken it is strange that the same cold and formal spirit which the renaissance teaching has raised amongst us should be equally dead to the languages of imitation and of symbolism and should at once disdain the faithful rendering of real nature by the modern school of the pre-raphaelites and the symbolic rendering of imagined nature in the work of the thirteenth century but so it is and we find the same body of modern artists rejecting pre-raphaelitism because it is not ideal and thirteenth-century work because it is not real their own practice being at once false and unideal and therefore equally opposed to both 
it is therefore at this juncture of much importance to mark for the reader the exact relation of healthy symbolism and of healthy imitation and in order to do so let us return to one of our venetian examples of symbolic art to the central cupola of st mark's on that cupola as has been already stated there is a mosaic representing the apostles on the mount of olives with an olive tree separating each from the other and we shall easily arrive at our purpose by comparing the means which should have been adopted by a modern artist bred in the renaissance schools that is to say under the influence of claude and poussin and of the common teaching of the present day with those adopted by the byzantine mosaicist to express the nature of these trees the reader is doubtless aware that the olive is one of the most characteristic and beautiful features of all southern scenery on the slopes of the northern apennines olives are the usual forest timber the whole of the valdarno is wooded with them every one of its gardens is filled with them and they grow in orchard-like ranks out of its fields of maize or corn or vine so that it is physically impossible in most parts of the neighbourhood of florence pistoia lucca or pisa to choose any site of landscape which shall not owe its leading character to the foliage of these trees what the elm and oak are to england the olive is to italy nay more than this its presence is so constant that in the case of at least four-fifths of the drawings made by any artist in north italy he must have been somewhat impeded by branches of olive coming between him and the landscape its classical associations double its importance in greece and in the holy land the remembrances connected with it are of course more touching than can ever belong to any other tree of the field now for many years back at least one-third out of all the landscapes painted by english artists have been chosen from italian scenery sketches in greece and in the holy land have become as common as sketches on hampstead heath our galleries also are full of sacred subjects in which if any background be introduced at all the foliage of the olive ought to have been a prominent feature and here i challenge the untravelled english reader to tell me what an olive tree is like i know he cannot answer my challenge he has no more idea of an olive tree than if olives grew only in the fixed stars let him meditate a little on this one fact and consider its strangeness and what a wilful and constant closing of the eyes to the most important truths it indicates on the part of the modern artist observe a want of perception not of science i do not want painters to tell me any scientific facts about olive trees but it had been well for them to have felt and seen the olive tree to have loved it for christ's sake partly also for the helmed wisdom's sake which was to the heathen in some sort as that noble wisdom which stood at god's right hand when he founded the earth and established the heavens to have loved it even to the hoary dimness of its delicate foliage subdued and faint of hue as if the ashes of the gethsemane agony had been cast upon it for ever and to have traced line by line the gnarled writhing of its intricate branches and the pointed fretwork of its light and narrow leaves inlaid on the blue field of the sky and the small rosy white stars of its spring blossoming and the beads of sable fruit scattered by autumn along its topmost boughs 
the right in Israel of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and more than all the softness of the mantle, silver-grey, and tender like the down on a bird's breast, with which, far away, it veils the undulation of the mountains. These it had been well for them to have seen and drawn, whatever they had left unstudied in the gallery. And if the reader would know the reason why this has not been done, it is one instance only out of myriads which might have been given of sightlessness in modern art, and will ask the artists themselves, he will be informed of another of the marvellous contradictions and inconsistencies in the base Renaissance art. For it will be answered him, that it is not right, nor according to law, to draw trees so that one should be known from another, but that trees ought to be generalised into a universal idea of a tree, that is to say, that the very school which carries its science in the representation of man down to the dissection of the most minute muscle, refuses so much science to the drawing of a tree as shall distinguish one species from another and also, while it attends to logic, and rhetoric, and perspective, and atmosphere, and every other circumstance which is trivial, verbal, external, or accidental, in what it either says or sees, it will not attend to what is essential and substantial. Being intensely solicitous, for instance, if it draws two trees, one behind the other, that the farthest off shall be as much smaller as mathematics show that it should be, but totally unsolicitous to show what to the spectator is a far more important matter, whether it is an apple or an orange tree. This, however, is not to our immediate purpose. Let it be granted that an idea of an olive tree is indeed to be given us in a special manner. How, and by what language, this idea is to be conveyed, are questions on which we shall find the world of artists again divided. And it was this division which I wished especially to illustrate by reference to the mosaics of St. Mark's. Now the main characteristics of an olive tree are these. It has sharp and slender leaves of a greyish green, nearly grey on the under-surface, and resembling, but somewhat smaller than, those of our common willow. Its fruit, when ripe, is black and lustrous, but of course so small that, unless in great quantity, it is not conspicuous upon the tree. Its trunk and branches are peculiarly fantastic in their twisting, showing their fibres at every turn, and the trunk is often hollow, and even rent into many divisions like separate stems, but the extremities are exquisitely graceful, especially in the setting on of the leaves, and the notable and characteristic effect of the tree in the distance is of a rounded and soft mass or ball of downy foliage. End of Conclusion Part 1